earlier this week, our dishwasher valiantly washed its last dish. And so on Thursday, there was a guy installing a new one, because I'm pretty incompetent and stuff like that. And I started to talk to him. And I began by talking to him about new sports and weather kinds of things, basically trivial things, right? But then I deliberately began to try and deepen the conversation. And eventually he said to me, you know, my daughter down in Texas is having surgery this week for a type of cancer, the same kind of surgery that my wife had 10 years ago that almost took her life. And then he looked me in the eye and he said to me, he looked me in the eye, we'll grab another mic, I guess we're having a problem here. So. from this same surgery. And he said to me, when that happened 10 years ago, we stopped as a family and we gave serious consideration to what's most important in life. You know, there's all kinds of stuff going on in our world right now. As I was chatting with the leaders in our church, the elders in our church on Thursday night, I said, the word I'm going to use is disorientation. There's, a, there's this yawning sense of disorientation in our world right now. In a way that in our lifetime, and I understand there's been lots of other things in history, but in our lifetime, this is unprecedented stuff. And I would suggest that that's the time in life when it's important to consider what is most important in life. And I want to talk to you about one of those things this morning. And at the end of this talk, I'm going to give you a chance to commit yourself to pray for one or two or three or four people that are a part of your life, perhaps someone that you love, that you know is not in relationship with Christ. We've been focusing all around Christ this morning, which is the great place to focus. And you like this person, or you know this person, or you love this person, or persons, but you know they've never come to the place where they've really owned their stuff, owned their sin, and realized that Jesus is the only one that can forgive it. Jesus is the only one that really saves, as we sang about just moments ago from Acts chapter 4. That they've never been forgiven, they've never totally surrendered their life to Christ like we heard Jackson talk about moments ago, that they've never fully trusted him to be the Savior and the Lord completely in control of their life. And I want you to be thinking about who that person or persons are. If you have your Bible or your device, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 32. It's the second book in the Bible. And we're going to be continuing our series of messages. And this morning, I'm going to talk to you about the prayer that moves the hand of God. 
And it's all part of this big series we're doing when God leads the way. And we've been telling the story of God bringing the children of Israel out of captivity. He had promised more than 400 years before he had covenanted with his people that this would be the case. And he miraculously brings them out of Egypt. And during the course of that, many Egyptians realized that Jehovah God is the God. There is no other God, and they give their life to him, and they go on the journey as well with the people of Israel. And so we've been following through in this story, and as we're on this journey of bit of disorientation ourselves, what are the things that God is teaching us on this journey? And so if you have your Bible, like I said, let's begin reading in Exodus chapter 32 In verse 1, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come, let us make small g gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what he handed, what they handed him, and he made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. So Moses, along with Joshua, who will be the future leader of the children of Israel, have been up on the mountain meeting with God and receiving the law. Brian talked about this last week, about what meeting with God is like, about the holiness of meeting with God, about how in chapter 19, the mountain where where they were was covered in smoke. There was this great sound of a trumpet, and the mountain literally trembled because of the holy pure presence of God. And Moses has been gone for an extended time, meeting with God, and true to form, sad to say, with these people, they become impatient. And they begin to consider the things they've known in the past and engage on them. They're getting restless. And they go to Aaron, and they say, where is Moses? Has he abandoned us? And true to form, sad to say, they revert to trying to be like everyone else, like they saw emulated for them in the nation of Egypt, which which worshipped multiple gods, including Pharaoh himself, and like all the surrounding pagan nations that worshipped small g gods as well. And they thought, let's be like everyone else. And they're an obnoxious people. We've discovered this through this series. They whine, they complain, they murmur, they grumble, and they demand from Aaron that he would give them their own small g gods to worship. 
And I want to talk to you, just pause for a second and talk to you about a leadership moment right now. And if you are a leader in any sense, whether you're a leader in the church, whether you're a leader in your home, whether you're a leader in business or whatever the case may be, it takes incredible courage to be a leader. Because there's going to be those moments, and Aaron failed this test when he was weak and spineless and had no courage. And they're whining to him, and he knew what the right thing was to do. He wasn't confused about it, and he chose not to do it. And when you're a leader, there's those moments when you need to give the people what they need and not what they want. And no matter how much they complain, no matter how much they attack you, no matter what it costs you, you have to have the courage of the convictions that God has put in your heart. There's also a part of this passage that just really frightens me. Because... After all they have seen God do, and we as well have seen God do incredible things. After all they have seen God's do, I see what these people are capable of in the text. And I think to myself, what might I be capable of? What might you be capable of? And there's a warning in this. A warning, a sort of flashing neon light to keep a healthy relationship with God, to be prepared to suffer for our faith, to be prepared to take steps of courage to follow him. And so they bring their gold, and and Aaron, who is supposed to be looking after things, while Moses is meeting with God, makes a golden calf, and then he lies about it later in this very outrageous lie. You know, have you ever been caught red-handed doing something and you come up with this completely outrageous lie? And this is exactly what he does. He basically says, well, they brought me this stuff and I just, and he throws the people under the bus and blames them and says, I threw this gold into the fire and out popped a calf. Verse 22, it says this, Do not be angry, my Lord, Aaron answered. He's speaking to Moses. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me this gold. I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. Outrageous lie. It's sort of like the people that assume or think that the universe spontaneously generated itself out of absolutely nothing. It's along the lines of that. Only it's much, much more likely that a calf would self-create itself than the universe would spontaneously generate itself out of absolutely nothing. And they begin to worship this calf. And they have a drunken wild party as they're doing it. And I want to pause again at that moment as they're drinking to excess, as they're having a wild party, as they're engaged in practice, in pagan practices that they've seen before them and know about in the nations surrounding them. And I ask you this, before you take that first or next drink, I ask you this, and I understand clearly 
There's not one place in the Bible where it says, do not take a drink. It does not say that. What it does say is, do not get drunk, which leads to debauchery, which is exactly what is taking place here. But before you take that first or that next drink, are you 100% sure that you won't go down the same path? Or those that you influence, in particular your kids or your grandkids. And you're thinking to yourself, oh, I would never do that, Scott. And my response would simply be, maybe. Maybe. You know, addictions, the abuse of food or sex or work or chocolate or admiring something beautiful, all of those good things that I just listed, they begin out as good things, but I can choose, I can choose to allow those things to outgrow their rightful place and begin to take control of my life. Verse 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They've been quick to turn away from what I've commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people. The Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you, Moses, into a great nation. But this is the moment when one man stands in the gap for the nation of Israel. But... Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. O Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, And do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. And so in verse 11, we have one man standing in the map. Moses and Joshua come down. And Moses, like God, is full of anger over the sin of these people. He's full of righteous indignation. And this is the right time to be angry. He's motivated to do the right thing. And righteous indignation, that kind of anger, motivates us to do the right thing and to deal with sin. And so Moses comes down and he begins to deal with the sin. And so let's jump over into verse 30. 
The next day, Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and and prayed and said, oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves small g gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin as he prays on behalf of the nation. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made them. You know, there's a number of things I could continue to preach on in this passage. One of them would be, God cannot tolerate sin. We don't like to talk about sin much. He cannot tolerate it. There's not one place in the Bible where he goes, no big deal. And he does not tolerate it, and he will deal with it, maybe today, or maybe later, or maybe at the judgment seat. But he will deal with it. And when we keep putting it in his face over and over again, that's deeply unwise. I'm not going to focus on that this morning, of him being an absolutely righteous judge. Instead, we're going to focus on how God has put the future of people to some limited degree in the hands of people like you and me. And so God is about to give them what they richly deserve. They are guilty. They deserve it. They deserve to be punished. They deserve no mercy. But Moses stands up in verse 11 between him, between God and the entire nation, between the righteous judgment of God for sin and the destruction of these people. And God says to him, move aside, I'm going to wipe them out, and I'm going to start over again, I'm going to hit reset, and I'm going to build a great nation out of you. And this puts Moses in a very interesting position. Here is Moses, he loves God. And he loves the people and he turns to God and he prays. And his prayer seemingly is their only hope. Now, this is complicated stuff. Because just based on what I just said, you're thinking one thing. But always remember, the scripture teaches clearly that God never gives up control. And yet somehow he allows limited partnership in his endeavors. And let me say this to you. No man-made theological system fully explains this. And I've read the systems, and there's a lot of value in them. But no man-made theological system fully explains how this works. But this passage seems to clearly teach us that there are people whose hope, at least in part, lies in us praying for them by name, that God will draw them to himself, that God will save them from their sin, that they absolutely, just like every one of us, deserves the judgment of God and will receive eternal separation from God in a literal hell. And their only escape, as we sang about earlier, is in the forgiveness purchased for them by Christ on the cross. 
And in so some limited way, we stand in the gap or we're called to stand in the gap for these people, to pray for them, that they would cry out to God themselves to be forgiven, to be cleansed, and that they would surrender their life to him and he would be the savior and the Lord of their life. And I'm asking you, is there someone in your life or a series of someones that you would long to see give their life to Christ? Would you be willing to stand in the gap for them? And that's the challenge I'm going to put up at the end of this talk, that that God would lay on one or two or three or four people on your heart that you would pray for by name, that they would be saved, that they would surrender to Jesus, that they would become disciples of Christ, who then go on to make disciples. Even as Moses stood in the gap between an angry God about to mete out well-deserved punishment and to destroy these sinful people. We are standing in the gap for those, whose pe- those people who are in that sphere of influence. And again, I say, I understand and I recognize biblically that God is sovereign. I understand biblically that salvation is found absolutely only in God alone. It's based exclusively and uniquely on what Christ did on the cross and on his resurrection. But in some sense, I don't, at least I don't totally understand it. God allows us to pray on behalf of people for their salvation. And as with Moses, God was set to do one thing, and the text says God relented and spared them. So how does someone become this kind of an intercessor? What are some of the key ideas in Moses' prayer and the way he approached God? Well, really one of the first ideas was really revolving around his motivation as he prayed. And he prayed with love in his heart for these people. When I I seek to get free of the grounds of praying for my own selfish desires in my prayers for others... God pays attention, especially to those kind of prayers. So when I talk about praying with self and in, selfish intentions for myself and for others, I'm talking about things like this. Say you have, have a kid who's rebelling. And so I pray, not because you, you know, I'm not focused on the fact that this kid's rebelling and really heading in a way that's just going to destroy them and they need Jesus, they need to be saved, they need to be healed. No, I'm praying primarily because I'm embarrassed by their behavior. And so I'm going, Lord, would you save them so that I would stop being embarrassed by their behavior? That's a selfish orientation. Or would they, would they stop doing this stuff because it's really annoying me? You know, did you ever pray for someone to get saved and to come into relationship with God? And as you're praying, you're, you're, you're really thinking about how good it would be for me if something happened in their life. Or what about the pastor that prays for that person to come to Christ because just think of all they could do for the church if they did. I would suggest there's little value in intercession that's based in self-centeredness and selfishness. The book of James in chapter 4 says, the reason you're not getting your prayers answered is because you're asking with wrong motives. In verse 10, it says this. Now leave me alone, God says, so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you, Moses, into a great nation. 
Think of the headaches. If you've been with us on this series, think of the headaches that Moses has endured from these people. Like I said earlier, they're obnoxious people, always grumbling and murmuring, very quick to forget the things they've done, very quick to get in Moses' face and just annoy him and hassle him. Think of how much easier life would have been for Moses at this point if they were just gone. Think of the ego rush, the temptation to be able to say, this nation is the nation of Moses rather than the nation of Abraham. If you think of the three great world religions of Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, they will all talk about Abraham primarily, more so than Moses. They'll talk about Moses, but more so about Abraham. Imagine the temptation if you're Moses. They are going to be talking about me for the millennia to come. How does Moses respond in his prayer to that kind of opportunity? Humbly. He's a very humble, loving man. Heavenly Father, if you read the text, read the whole chapter, he's praying like this, at their expense, I'm not interested in being a great leader. I'm not interested in personal fame. I'm not interested in personal success at their expense. This is one of the reasons God chose him to lead, because he was a humble man. And he prays and he says, I love you, Lord. I'm committed to these people, and I ask you to save them. And so we pray for lost people, not for selfish desires or motivations, but because they are lost. Because they are heading to a Christless eternity. In a literal hell. This is at the heart of we try, why we're trying to be here as a church. As you see in our, in our purpose statement behind me on the wall, we're all about, or at least our desire is to be all about people who reach, teach, and equip people to know, love, and serve. And that's written in parallel. We reach people so they'll know. We teach people so they'll love, so they'll become disciples who make disciples. We equip people so they will serve. The next thing I notice in this passage, in this prayer of Moses, is to, to seek the glory and the honor of God alone in my praying. And we notice this in verse 7. God says, he keeps saying, you know, the people, your people, Moses, your people that did this and did that. And Moses flips it on his ear when he's responding to God. And he keeps saying to God, these are your people, that you brought up out of Egypt. And Moses is praying and he's saying, God, I don't, I want you to be exalted in all this. This is a primary concern of mine. And I don't want the Egyptians who you showed over and over and over again who the real God is, I don't want the Egyptians to be speaking poorly of you. And so he's concerned with God's glory. He's concerned with God's honor as he prays. And I believe it helps immensely in our interaction with him as we pray. When we pray for him to be exalted, to be glorified. When we, just, when we pray and we just immediately go into a list of things we need. And we miss this crucial step. We are missing a crucial step. That the primary focus here in everything I do and I say 
will be that he is exalted in and through my life. And as I pray, I make that a primary point of prayer. Finally, I claim the promises of God in my prayer. And we see this in verse 13. He reminds God of God's covenant. And he says, hey, God, more than 400 years ago, back in Genesis 12 and in the subsequent generations, I I know that you promised these things would take place. And so as you've often heard me say over the years, you don't ever wave the Bible in God's face and say, you have to do this. You don't get obnoxious. You don't make demands. But we humbly, we reverently, and yet at the same time, boldly and in a faith-filled way, we come to God and we say, you know, your, your word says this very clearly, and I can see how it's deeply applicable in this specific situation. And I ask you to do this, God, based on your promises to me. I think we can pray that way in our prayers. So ask yourself, who prayed for your salvation? Are you aware of people that prayed for you? Probably about some of them, but maybe not about all of them. Some of them you might not know till you get to heaven. I wish that we had time, like Jackson, who shared his story of generations that prayed for him, of a mom and grandparents that prayed for him to come to faith. I'd love to hear everybody's story of that here. What an incredible celebration that would be of people that stood in the gap for you, and now we see a life changed. A life like Jackson's committed to Christ. Committed to serving him for a lifetime. Are you grateful that they prayed for you? Was it your mom? Maybe your dad, a friend, a spouse, a small group, whatever it is. You know, a while ago, I was talking with one of our leaders, one of our elders, and he tells me the story about this relative, this little old lady in his life. And he saw her briefly. And this little old lady relative of his, looks him in the eye. And she said, from the time you were this big, I've prayed for you every day. And now that elder came to the place where he made the choice to receive Christ as his savior. And he has a wife that knows Christ He has a family that has decided to receive Christ. That man matured in his faith, became a faithful follower of Christ, and now he's a leader in this church. You start to get the sense of how important you standing in the gap for people is. As God puts someone or a number of someone's in your heart to pray for. I'd like you to take out your phone if you have your phone. If you don't have a phone here at home, take a piece of paper. There's cards in the chairs in front of you. You could grab one of those. And I'm going to invite you to make a commitment and just to type it on your phone or write it on your phone. And there's the commitment I'm going to ask you to make. That you would just pray, and hopefully you have been already, and say, God, Is there one or two or three or four people 
that you've laid on my heart to stand in the gap for. People that I know are not in relation, to the best of my knowledge, are not in relationship in a life-changing way with the Lord Jesus Christ. And then just type that name into your phone or write the name on the paper and then words to this effect that they would receive Jesus as their personal Savior and Lord. And that I make the commitment to pray as the Word of God instructs and I'll pray for them as often as God reminds me that they would come to faith. And what I want to do is I want to take a moment right now for you to do that on your phone or on a piece of paper you have in your hand. I've already done mine, but I'm going to give you a chance to do it right now. Let's just take a moment and do that.